Guys, we are going to be studying chapters 21 through 23 this morning. So if you do have a Bible or if you like to follow along on your phone on a Bible app, feel free to do so. We're going to continue talking about the life of Paul this morning. So Ken spoke last week, um, and the study we titled it last week was A Long and Winding Road. So that's going to continue, and we're going to continue to see Paul on this long and winding road. And this week, the study is titled Fellow Apostles, False Accusations, and Furious Adversaries. And what we're going to see in the story this morning is Paul is going to encounter his fellow apostles. False accusations are going to be brought against him. And he's also going to face furious adversaries. And these adversaries um, are those that we assume them to be. Um, but they're also going to be individuals that um, are going to catch us off guard. They're not who we think they are. So let's jump right in. And we're going to be jumping around a little bit throughout these three chapters. And we're going to start um, in chapter 22. Um, but first, let me pray, and then we'll start reading God's Word. Father, we just thank you so much for this morning. Uh, the opportunity to come together um, to study your Word. Um, we ask for um, encouragement, conviction, um, and that you're able to just find us and meet us right where we are, Lord, um, and that we're able to take away this morning something that just brings us closer to you, um, grows our love for you, um, and we just thank you so much um, for everything you do for us, and we lift this up in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Acts chapter 22, verse 14. So... We're starting in the middle, and right here, to give you a little context, Paul is the one that's speaking, and he is speaking of somebody who's actually saying something to him. So he says, then he told me, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and hear him speak, for you are to be his witness telling everyone what you have seen and heard. Okay, so this man is speaking to Paul. And he's saying, God has chosen you to be a witness. A witness to what? A witness to what he has seen and heard. Well, what has he seen and heard? So in order to figure that out, we need to go back a few verses to the beginning of the story to understand what he is going to be a witness to. And this is where we're going to talk about Paul's conversion. And it's, this one's unique because back in Acts chapter 9, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, was the one that was telling the story of Paul's conversion. But this is cool because Paul is telling his conversion in his own words. And it's, based, it's almost a word-to-word -word account of Luke's back in Acts chapters 9. So let's look. Chapter 22, verse 6. This is Paul speaking. As I was on the road approaching Damascus about noon, a very bright light from heaven suddenly shone down around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Okay, so what is Paul doing? He's on the road to Damascus. What is he going to Damascus to? to do. He's going to persecute Christians. At this point, Paul is still a Pharisee. He's still a Jew. And he is still persecuting Christians. He is seeking them out, whether to kill them, throw them in jail, whatnot. But he's trying to put an end to what, um, basically them preaching the gospel and telling about Christ. So that's what's happened right here. And a bright light from heaven suddenly shone down. 
Okay, so Paul is a Pharisee. He's a religious man. He believes in God. He's spiritual. So he believes in divine encounters. And this is a divine encounter. So he knows this. So he fell to the ground. And then speak, the voice speaking to him said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Paul, at this point, believes he's doing God's work by persecuting Christians because he does not think that Jesus is the risen Lord. So he thinks he's doing God's work. And now here's this divine encounter, which he knows is divine. And this voice, who he knows is God, is speaking, and it's saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So at this point, he's, he's confused. He's just like, I thought I was doing your work. And now here's this voice, this powerful voice telling me that I'm actually persecuting you. So he's like, what's going on? So he responds and he asks, who are you, Lord? And like I said, it's a divine encounter. He knows this, so he knows it's Lord. It's the Lord. But he's like, who are you? Because you're saying that I'm persecuting you, but I don't think I'm persecuting you. The voice replied, I am Jesus the Nazarene, the one you are persecuting. So this is probably where Paul's heart stopped. He was probably a deer in the headlights. Because <laughs> here is God telling him, hey, God is actually Jesus. I am the one that you are persecuting. And he's just like, oh, no, this can't be good. Because he is persecuting God. And he finally realizes this. He sees and hears that Jesus is the risen Lord. Like he knows it now. He didn't believe it before, but now he does. And now he realizes that he is the one that he's been persecuting. He's been killing those who love Jesus. So he asks, what should I do, Lord? So here is he submitting out of obedience. Or is he submitting out of fear? It's a little bit of both. He's not submitting saying, oh my gosh, you know, I need to travel around. I need to preach your word. What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? No, I think the fear factor is huge here. Because here, like we said, he's persecuting Jesus. He's persecuting those who love Jesus. And now he's like, okay, here comes the punishment. What's going to happen to me? He's like, what should I do, Lord? He is submitting, but he's submitting out of fear. And how does Jesus respond? He says, get up and go into Damascus, and there you'll be told everything you are to do. Now Paul's just probably thinking, it's like, okay, now my punishment is just getting delayed. Now I have to wait till Damascus. What is going to happen to me in Damascus? That was probably a really long walk for Paul trying to think. His mind was probably running a mile a minute trying to figure out what was going to happen in Damascus, what Jesus was going to have him do, because he probably didn't think it was a good thing based on his past actions. We pick it up in verse 11. I was blinded by the intense light and had to be led by the hand to Damascus by my companions. A man named Ananias lived there. He was a godly man, deeply devoted to the law, and well regarded by all the Jews of Damascus. He came and stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, regain your sight, and at that very moment I could see him. So he makes his way to Damascus, and he runs into a godly man named Ananias, who Jesus was speaking of, saying this Basically, Ananias is going to be the one who tells him what he has to do. And that's where we see these verse, this verse again, 14 and 15. Then Ananias told me, 
The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and hear him speak. For you are to be his witness, telling everyone what you have seen and heard. So Paul is called to be the witness for Christ, a witness for Christ. And he's supposed to witness to what he's seen and heard. What did he see and hear? He saw Jesus, the risen Lord, the resurrection. At first he thought he was just a man who had died, but now he realized he is God and he died, yes, but he was raised from the dead. So he is called to witness and tell others that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord. It's the resurrection that he's supposed to be a witness to. It's the same thing we've been talking about the last few weeks when we talk about our calling. We are called to be a witness to the resurrection of Christ. That is the core of what we believe. That is the core of Christianity. That is what we are called to witness to. And the amazing thing is we're gonna see as we unpack these three chapters is we're gonna see the determination of Paul and we're gonna see that determination and how it is rooted in his conversion. It is rooted in this. It is based on the resurrection. That is what motivates him. That is where his determination comes from, which is where our determination should come from as well. I feel like a lot of times, um, myself included, that I just kinda forget about my conversion. I just kinda go through and I'm so focused on present day that I forget why I am where I am today. And it's that, it's remembering that that gives us the motivation and determination to do what God has called us to do. And that is witness to the resurrection, which is exactly what Paul is called to do by Jesus. So what did he do after Damascus? He returned to Jerusalem and he was praying in the temple and he fell into a trance and Jesus came to him in a vision and Jesus told him, hurry, leave Jerusalem for the people here won't accept your testimony about me. Okay, so he's called to leave Jerusalem. We know from where we're sitting today what kind of how the story unfolds. So Paul is called to preach to the Gentiles. So Jesus is calling them out of Jerusalem and to faraway places so that he can tell the Gentiles about the love of Christ and about the resurrection. So he can be a witness to that to the Gentiles. But there will come a day when Jesus calls them back to Jerusalem. In Acts 20, 22 through 23, and it says, I am, and now I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. This is Paul speaking. I don't know what awaits me except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. He is bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem now. Yes, he was called out of Jerusalem, but now it's time for him to go back. And take note of what it says at the end of these, these verses. Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. That's gonna be prevalent in these chapters as we unpack them. But at this moment, he's bound to go back to Jerusalem. So we're gonna jump back to the beginning of Acts chapters 21, and that is where we're gonna pick up the story, Paul returning to Jerusalem. So we're gonna pick it up in verse four. So basically, Paul is far away, and he's traveling by ship back to Jerusalem. And the text notes that he makes different stops in different cities. Um, but once he gets to the city of Tyre, they have to unload cargo and he ends up staying there. 
So verse four, we went ashore, found the local believers and stayed with them a week. These believers prophesied through the Holy Spirit that Paul should not go on to Jerusalem. Okay, so what's happening here? We see this contradiction. So is the Holy Spirit contradicting himself? No. The Holy Spirit told Paul to go to Jerusalem. Paul is bound by the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And then these believers are saying, through the Holy Spirit, don't go to Jerusalem. So it sounds like he's contradicting himself, but he's not. What's happening here is that the Holy Spirit is showing them of what awaits Paul in Jerusalem. Suffering, persecution, jail. Just what it said in that last verse. Every city he goes to, he is going to suffer. That is what the Holy Spirit is revealing to these believers. So they are acting out of their own hearts from a well-meaning place because they don't want their brother Paul to suffer. They don't want to see that. They don't want to see him get hurt. So that's what's happening here. He is bound to go to Jerusalem, but these men and women, these believers, don't want to see him suffer. So they're probably like, why don't you just go somewhere else where it's a little safer and do the same thing? But Paul is so determined that he is going to keep going. So once he left Tyre, um, he arrived in Caesarea. And so he was in Caesarea a few days with the believers and disciples there. And then a man named Agabus showed up. Agabus had the gift of prophecy. So he came, Agabus came over, and he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands with it. So Paul's probably wearing his belt at this point. So if just some stranger walks up and takes your belt, he was probably a little, a little hesitant at first. <laughs> but he still let him have his belt. So, and he bound his own feet and hands with it. I would have probably stared at him kind of strangely um, at that point. But he said, Agabus said, the Holy Spirit declares. So what he's about to say is what the Holy Spirit declares. This is what the Holy Spirit is saying. He's speaking through Agabus here. He says, so shall the owner of this belt be bound by the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem and turned over to the Gentiles. So basically to sum that up, it's specific, but to sum that up, Paul is going to suffer in Jerusalem. That's what the Holy Spirit declares. It says, when we heard this, we being inclusive, the author of this book, Luke, is part of the we. So Luke the apostle, as well as the other believers there, are begging Paul not to go to Jerusalem after they hear this. They're begging him. So what's going on here? Well, they weren't telling Paul anything he didn't know. Like we saw, the Holy Spirit told him city after city he's going to suffer. The believers in Tyre heard he was going to suffer. These believers, through Agabus's prophecy, heard that he was going to suffer in Jerusalem. It's nothing that he wasn't already aware of. He knew about this. It's just confirmation of what Jesus had told him. It's confirmation of what the Holy Spirit had told him. You will suffer. But the interesting thing is, those believers in Tyre, as well as the believers here in Caesarea, 
Luke included, were unknowingly contradicting the will of God. Because what was God's will for Paul's life? To go to Jerusalem. Yes, he was going to suffer. That was part of God's will. But they were speaking out because they didn't want him to suffer. Again, they're coming from a place of well-meaning. They don't want to see their brother suffer. They don't want to see him get hurt. They don't want to see him die. They don't want to see anything happen to him because they love him. But they're unknowingly contradicting the will of God. So what can we take from this? It's, we have to be careful not to let the counsel of men outweigh the counsel of God in our life. About, yeah, it was about two years ago, one and a half, two years ago, um, I was working in finance. And basically I had uh, the opportunity, or the opportunity was presented to me, and I was kind of wrestling with this, whether or not to go into ministry at the, point, at the time. And the opportunity came that... Um, there was an internship here at Christ Chapel, the residency program that I had heard about. So I walked up to um, the man. I knew uh, the pastor who runs it. He was actually mentoring me. So I walked up to him and I said, hey, I'm interested, potentially interested in doing the residency at Christ Chapel. And he's like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad you told me. That's great. But we don't have any spots for you. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. Thanks. Um, but what was so cool, two weeks later, someone dropped out. And so there was an open spot and he walked up to me and he was like, it's yours. I'm like, awesome, I'll take it. But then I had to go tell everybody, those close to me, my parents, my friends, sisters, my boss, my coworkers. And luckily I was very fortunate. Every single one was very supportive of me. But what if hypothetically they weren't? So at the time, you know, I had, a, I had a great salary. I was up for a promotion probably within the next month or two. So I was going to make even more money. I had benefits. I had, you know, I had financially stable. You know, I had a great apartment, you know, so on. I was comfortable. I was fine. 401k, everything. So <laughs> I was in good shape. Um, but I really had this longing to go. And if they had told me, you know what? I don't think that's a good idea. Because here at the internship, I was just going to get a stipend and probably live off peanut butter and jelly for the next 10 months, not knowing what my future hold, because I'm basically jumping out of my career and jumping into something that's just unknown. So what if they spoke up and they said, I don't think that's a good idea? What if my dad had said, I don't think that's a good idea? I don't think you should go because of this, this, and this. I probably would have really thought it through. And maybe I wouldn't be standing here today. But it was God's will for me to stand here today. Because I knew, I felt called to it. I had this really strong desire to go do it. And God confirmed that desire in me. So we have to be careful. We have to be careful not to let men's counsel outweigh the counsel of God in our lives. And it's so easy to fall into that trap. So we have to go to the scriptures and weigh the advice that's given to us against the scriptures. Yes, the scriptures aren't going to answer every single specific question about like, where do I live? You know, what do I do over here? What do I do over there? 
but it talks about morals. It talks about ethics. It talks about being stewards of your assets. So it does speak to it. It just speaks to it in a different way. So we have to weigh the advice against the scriptures. And following God's will won't always make sense. Leaving a career and jumping into an internship at a church does not make sense to most people. Didn't really make sense to me at the time, but I felt like it was something I really wanted to do, and God confirmed it. It doesn't always make sense. And there's two sides of the coin here. We can either be the ones receiving the advice from others, or we can be the ones giving the advice to others. So we have to be careful when someone gives us advice that God's counsel outweighs their counsel. And we also have to be careful that we're not giving that worldly advice to others and trying to sway them away from God's will. So why don't we just walk beside them? Yes, seek out counsel. Seek out wise, godly counsel. But always weigh God's counsel above that of men. So, it's back to Paul. It's really cool to see how Paul's journey to Jerusalem parallels Jesus' journey to Jerusalem because they face a lot of the same resistance. So we're going to look at, uh, in the book of Matthew, um, Jesus's, the resistance that Jesus faced on his way to Jerusalem. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. Okay, so if I was listening to him say this, the things that would jump out to me, suffer many terrible things and killed. That would have jumped out to me. Yes, he said on the third day, be raised from the dead. But at that time, if we're in their shoes, his disciple's shoes, who he's speaking to, he's like, I don't even know what that means. Like you're going to be raised from the dead. Like what? Okay, cool. But you're going to be killed and you're going to suffer many terrible things. And we don't want that. So Peter responds, but Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. So in turn, Jesus responded. He said, get away from me, Satan. So here's Peter who loves him and he doesn't want to see him suffer. And he's basically telling him, don't go because I don't want to see you die. And then Jesus turns and says, get away from me, Satan. That probably caught Peter off guard. He probably was not expecting that kind of response. Because again, he's coming from a well-meaning place. Jesus continues, you are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. There's the key. Peter is coming at it from a human perspective. The selfishness of his heart because he doesn't want to see the one he loves die. But it's God's will. It was God's will for Jesus to die. What if Jesus had listened to Peter? We would not be sitting here. It was God's will for Jesus to go to the cross and rise again after three days. It is God's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem. Yes, he's going to suffer. That's part of God's will. But it's something he's called to. So just like the believers in Tyre and Caesarea, Peter here is speaking out unknowingly against God's will. So back to Paul. So we talked about 
Agabus's prophecy. And then they responded. They didn't want him to go. They tried to persuade him. So then Paul responds, Why all this weeping? You are breaking my heart. I am not ready only to be jailed at Jerusalem, but even to die. How, what kind of determination is that? He is so focused on God's will, and he puts God and Christ above himself that he is willing to lay down his life for Christ. He's willing to be jailed. He's willing to die. For the sake of are the key words here, because he's not willing to die for anything, like I just said. He's willing to die for Christ. So that begs the question, what are you willing to die for? Is there something you're willing to die for? Maybe a car, a house, a vacation home. I can list material things, but most likely every person in this room, if they were going to answer that question, they would say their wife, their brother, their sister, their friends, their children. It would be a relationship. If something means something to you, there's always something that means something to you. So there's meaning attached to it. So if you're going to die for, for something, there's going to be meaning attached to whoever or whatever that is. And there's also going to be purpose behind it. So if it means something to you, you're going to have a purpose to either keep it safe. Say it's your wife. Keep her safe. Um, bless her with a great life. Be there for her. Comfort her during the tough times. So there's meaning attached to it, and then there's purpose behind it if you're willing to die for it. So let's say again, your wife, if she means so much to you and you have so much purpose in taking care of her that you're willing to die for her, where is your identity found? Your identity is going to be found in her. And the issue with that is you're seeking affirmation from somebody who can't always love you perfectly. So your identity is going to go like this. It's going to be based on emotion. It's going to be based on circumstances. It's going to be based on situations. But if your identity is in Christ, he loves you and he will never stop loving you. And he can love you perfectly. So in every situation and in every circumstance, your identity is going to be transcendent across all those situations. It will never change. <clears throat> Paul says in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That was where Paul's identity was. Thinking back to his conversion, it was all about the resurrection. It was all about Jesus. His identity was found in Jesus. That is what gave him the determination to do what God had called him to do, to go to Jerusalem and suffer. His identity was in Christ, and our identities need to be found in Christ. If we're going to make it through and be able to do what God has called us to witness to, the resurrection. So, when they couldn't persuade him, they gave up, and they said, the Lord's will be done. So, Paul continues on to Jerusalem. He makes it to Jerusalem, and what happens? 
Well, he's welcomed warmly. Well, things are off to a pretty good start. He went up to meet with James and the other elders. Um, and basically what he did was he shared all that God had been doing through his ministry. So here they are, brothers and sisters there, who are just welcoming each other warmly. They're probably having food. They're giving praise to God. Everything is going well. They're joyous. They're happy. So Paul shares. And then James shares. And he shares about how many thousands of Jews in Jerusalem have come to believe. But as he sings praise to God, he also issues a word of warning to Paul. And he says that all these Jewish believers follow the law of Moses very seriously. They're still very religious about it. So what does that mean? Well, the Jewish believers have heard that Paul has been telling the Jews who are living among the Gentiles that they should do the following things. One, to turn their backs on the law of Moses. Two, to teach them not to circumcise their children. And three, not to follow other Jewish customs. So basically, there's, they have been told that he is speaking out against the law and telling Jews not to follow it. And these Jewish believers are very religious about it. And this is, these are lies. These are the false accusations that we are talking about that are being brought against Paul. So, James and the other elders, what should we do? They want to figure out a way to deter them from, you know, thinking this way about Paul. So, verse 23, here's what we want you to do. Key words here, we want. So, again, he's coming from a well-meaning place, but James is trying to prevent Paul's suffering. We're seeing this over and over and over, trying to prevent his suffering or negate it altogether. But this was James's plan. Again, this wasn't God's plan. This wasn't God's will for Paul. This was James's plan. So James's desire for Paul not to suffer is gonna run right into God's divine decree. You can't avoid God's divine decree. And we're gonna see them right here just collide. So, Basically, the plan was there were four men um, who were going through a purification process, which is basically a fasting that's followed by um, sacrifices. So they're like, okay, Paul, so how about you go ahead and join them? They've already started this purification process. So why don't you jump in and join them? And then you can pay for their sacrifice at the end of it. And then once all the Jewish believers see you adhering to the law, they're not gonna think that you're speaking out against it. They're not gonna think that you are against it. Sounds like a pretty plausible plan. So, what happens? So, the seven days were almost ended, so the purification process was almost ended, when some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul in the temple. So it probably gave them enough time, those seven days, to come in to Jerusalem from whenever they were coming from in Asia. And what did they do when they saw Paul? They roused a mob against him. They grabbed him. They yelled, men of Israel, help us. This is the man who preaches against our people everywhere and tells everybody to disobey the Jewish laws. So this is where we're seeing James's plan run right into God's divine decree. They grabbed Paul. Now it escalates quickly and we're gonna hit on the high points here. I wouldn't say they're necessarily high points, at least for Paul. Paul was grabbed. 
he was dragged out of the temple. They were trying to kill him. So here's this Jewish mob. They roused up a riot. They grabbed Paul. They dragged him out. They tried to kill him. So it was enough of a riot to get the Roman commander and his soldiers' attention. So they come in and they stop them from beating Paul. So they were going to beat Paul to death. That was their goal. So the commander, he didn't just pick him up, dust him off, and take him to a safe place. He arrested him and bound him in two chains. And then they uh, took him out so they could get away from the mob. And the mob followed, shouting, kill him, kill him. And this is where we really see how amazing Paul's determination is through all this. It's easy to be determined during the good times. We all know that. It's easy to stay determined and focus on God when everything's going well. But once it falls apart, it's so easy to just get frustrated, get angry, not stay determined like, oh, well, it's getting hard. So, you know, I'm just going to take a step back. No, it is so amazing and powerful that Paul was so determined, even through all this suffering of being grabbed, of being dragged, of being beaten, trying to be killed, arrested, chained. His determination never waned. Why? Because he had the Holy Spirit inside of him, the same Holy Spirit that we have inside of us. Because of that, he was able to stay determined. It is such a testament to the Holy Spirit and the amazing power that's inside of you to be able to stay determined during the bad times, during the hard times, during suffering. Paul had the right perspective. He was so focused on God that he was able to stay determined through all this. About maybe, it kind of built up, but about three or four years ago, um, I really hit rock bottom. And I really had a bout with depression. And it was pretty serious. And uh, it kind of escalated to the point where I had planned my suicide. But God never left me throughout all that. And he found me. And he spoke a verse to me. It's 2 Corinthians 5.14. And it says, for the love, the translation I heard was, for the love of Christ compels me. See, I had no meaning. I had no purpose. Just like we talked about. There was nothing for me seemingly for me to live for. But I had such a selfish perspective that I was focusing all the things that were happening to me that I had just lost sight of God. And when he told me, for the love of Christ compels you, it clicked. It gave me meaning, it gave me purpose. It showed me that there's something to live for. And that is what gave me the determination to change my mindset, to work through it, and battle for his sake. And now I'm standing up here and I get to talk about it. And I get to talk about God's word. And I get to glorify him. If you had told me three or four years ago that I would be doing this, I don't know what I would say, but I wouldn't have believed you. It is so amazing, the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit inside of you. And what how he can fuel that determination inside of you. You have to be active in it. But it's because of him that we can stay determined during the hard times.
And that's exactly what Paul did. So the Roman commanders took him. Um, they took him into the barracks, and basically Paul had the opportunity to speak, and he spoke to the crowd, um, and they listened, at least for the time being. And what he did was he told the story of his conversion, which we touched on at the very beginning. And towards the end of that story, story Paul said this, but the Lord said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Right as he said Gentiles, they began to shout, away with such fellow, he isn't fit to live. That word clicked in their minds and the riot broke out again. They wanted him to die. They yelled, threw off their coats and tossed handfuls, handfuls of dust into the air. So the Roman commanders had to take him um, away and basically what they decided, now the Roman commanders don't know what he's accused of. Again, there's false accusations that are brought against him. The Roman commander doesn't know. So he goes to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high council, and brings Paul before them and basically says, okay, we need to figure out what this man is accused of. So he goes before the Jewish high council. The Jewish high council lets him speak. And then what happens next? A riot ensues the Jewish high council bursts into a riot. It becomes violent. The Romans have to take him out to keep him safe. And what they do is they throw him in prison. So at one thing after another, he is grabbed. It's just people are trying to kill him left and right. And then he gets thrown in prison. So that's where we find him. And the night that he was in prison, the Lord appeared to Paul and said, be encouraged, Paul. Just as you've been a witness to me here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. Now, Paul had always wanted to go to Rome, so he was probably pretty excited when he heard that. But at the same time, let's look at the very beginning. It says, be encouraged. Seriously? I was just grabbed, drug out of the temple, beaten, almost killed, arrested, bound in chains, went before the Jewish high council, they tried to kill me. They were violent. I am now in prison and I'm supposed to be encouraged? What in the world is encouraging about that? How can I be encouraged? Well, you can't. There's nothing encouraging about that. That's awful. But where was he coming from? He was looking at it. If you take that perspective, that's the human perspective. Look at it from God's perspective, because he wasn't done yet. At the end of that verse, he said, you are going to Rome to preach the good news. I still have a purpose for you. There is still meaning in your life. Be encouraged. He had a plan that Paul cannot see. He was working behind the scenes. God is always working. So Paul was supposed to be encouraged by God's sovereignty. It's something we've touched on pretty much every week throughout this study. God is sovereign. That should be so encouraging for us to know that he is over everything. He is in charge of everything. He is constantly working. So we can't judge the will of God by our present circumstances. A lot of times, I feel like sometimes when things go really bad, we think God is absent. Go back to my story of depression. I didn't see God at all through that. 
I was frustrated, although there were some days where I relied on him and I turned back to him. But at the same time, the next day, you know, I would just get frustrated again. We can't let those present circumstances allow us or make us judge the will of God one way or another. He is always working. We don't know what's around the corner. We don't know what the ending is. When we look at the story of Paul, we do know what the ending is because we can see the whole story. But at that time, Paul didn't know the whole story. He probably thought when he was getting beaten, this might be it. This might be where I die. And he's, you know what? He was in the will of God and he was okay with that. So through the suffering, we still have to rely on God. We still have to know that he's working. We still have to. Psalm 118, six through seven. The Lord is for me, so I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? Yes, the Lord is for me. He will help me. I will look in triumph at those who hate me. The Lord is for you. He's not against you. He's so much more powerful than any man. He's got you. We have to remember that. So the next morning, there was a group of Jews. They got together and they bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. So here we go again. There's another threat on Paul's life. So basically, their plan was to ambush him. So they basically went to the Jewish high council, told them, hey, summon Paul and say, uh, from the Romans and say you want to talk to him. And then while he's walking um, to the council, we are going to hide and then ambush him, jump him, and kill him. So that was the plan. So remember, God said, Paul, you are going to Rome to preach the good news. So God is not done with Paul. So God had a divine plan in all of this. And what happened next? Paul's nephew heard of their plan. We don't know how Paul's nephew heard of the plan, but we know he did. And then Paul's nephew went to Paul and he told them of the plot against his life. Paul didn't sit back and be passive and you're like, you know what? God promised that I'm going to Rome, so I'm just gonna sit back and you know, God's gonna take care of this. No, he saw this as God speaking. So what did he do? He had his nephew go before the Roman commander and tell him of what was gonna happen. So what did the Roman commander do? Well, he got 470 soldiers together to escort Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea to Governor Felix. 470, that has to speak volumes to either the size of the Jewish mob or how many people wanted him dead. For one man, if it takes 470 soldiers to keep you safe, that speaks volumes about how many people wanted him dead. So what the Jews intended for evil resulted in good. Their plot to kill him resulted in Paul's departure. God used that to fast track him out of Jerusalem and begin his journey to Rome. God's will can't be avoided or altered. It is going to come to fruition one way or another. We don't know how. It's usually never the way that we plan it. It's God's plan. And it usually happens in such a better way than anything we could have come up with. His will can't be avoided or altered. So he arrives in Caesarea to Governor Felix. And what does Governor Felix do? He throws him in prison. 
He orders him to stay in prison until his accusers arrive. And that's where we're left at the end of chapter 23. So Paul was in the middle of God's will the entire time throughout everything that happened to him, all of his suffering when he was in prison, everything. He was in the middle of God's will. But it still required determination and faith. He had to have determination and faith in the middle of God's will. So let's look at Paul. He was an active participant in God's will. He wasn't passive. He was active. He took action. He was determined to glorify Christ at all costs. He trusted God with his life, but was willing to lose his life if necessary. He was willing to give up his life if he had to. He was committed to God's plan. He didn't veer. He was committed to it. When all of his friends were speaking out and telling him not to go to Jerusalem, he stayed committed to God's plan. He stayed determined. He had the faith and the trust in God to say, this is what you have for me. I'm determined to go. I'm committed. And he lived in obedience to Christ's promise. I find myself right now in an interesting place because I don't know what the future holds for me. I'm pretty confident seminary isn't for me. But what does that look like moving forward? I have a lot of big decisions to make. It's like, do I go back into business? Do I stay in vocational ministry? Who do I date? Who do I marry? I have a lot of big decisions to make. And I don't know what God has for me. But all I do know over the past couple years of being able and blessed to go through this internship and now work here, and being able to study God's word and grow closer to him, all I know is that I want the determination to stay in the word consistently, to constantly pursue God in whatever he has for me. I wanna stay determined to be a witness to the resurrection for the rest of my life. And I don't know what that looks like. Again, I have a lot of big decisions to make that a lot of people in this room have already made. But that doesn't mean that you don't have decisions still to make. That doesn't mean that God still doesn't have a purpose for you because you are alive today in this room. You have today, most likely tomorrow, and maybe a lot more. But we must stay determined. We must stay determined to witness to the resurrection, to live for God. We all don't know what tomorrow holds. So we have to rely on him. And Christ's promise, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But how does he end it? And be sure of this, be sure of it in your heart and in your head. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. God is never gonna leave you. That should be so encouraging. That should give you all the confidence in the world you need to be determined, to stay determined, to have the faith to live this life well for him. Your questions this morning. One, do you think most Christians live with the same assurance that Paul had, that Jesus is with them till the end of the age? What proves that they do or don't? Two, how would, you, how would most Christians complete the following sentence? Better yet, how would you? I am willing to die for the sake of blank. 
Three, in what ways have you allowed negative circumstances to distort your view of God's sovereignty? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the ability to dive into your word um, to learn more. I just ask that you encourage us and convict us um, this morning um, where you need to. And I just ask a blessing upon the discussion around the table and as we continue about our day. Um, In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.